All right, everybody, welcome back to the Biblos Network. We're so glad you've taken the time out of your schedule to join us. I trust you're enjoying the blessing of the Lord. This week, we have a special a special episode for you. We are being joined by Dr. Dean Anderson. I'm actually appearing on his on his podcast and he is the head of Preserving the Christian Family. You can go to preservingthechristianfamily.com. You can follow them on Preserving the Christian Family on Instagram. But Dr. Anderson is doing a series on apostolic distinctions and administrations. And tonight we are going to be talking about apostolic leadership. And so we, we've had a great session and we wanted to share it with you here on Biblos. I encourage you to go to his website. He has several books on there. He has several classes that you can take. They will greatly help you and enrich you and edify you as you serve the Lord and as you grow in the things of God. So I hope you enjoy this session tonight. I hope it's a blessing to you. Until the next time, God bless you, God keep you, God cause his face to shine upon you. So welcome everybody to uh, Apostolic Life and Leadership tonight. We are honored to have uh, Brother Pastor Nathaniel Urshan with us from Durham, North Carolina, a host of Biblos, which you guys uh, probably are familiar with, and he's actually coming to us from that studio tonight. So uh, what what a great thing. So he is, he is locked and loaded. So uh, for those of you that are new to uh, Epsoc Life and Leadership, as as we say, morning it, it's uh, about an hour. Oh, you know what? Let me go ahead and jump to another. Yeah, back. Let me. And. Okay, I think we're good. All right. So um, it's about an hour, so we're going to go about 45 minutes or so, whatever Brother Urshan feels. Uh, this topic is on apostolic uh, ministry, which is relevant for all of us, of course. Uh, fantastic. So looking forward to it. And then we will, uh, within a day or two, when the video uploads, we will send that out to you as well. Those of you that have registered who are here uh, tonight, and some registered who weren't able to make it, they just wanted access to the recording. And then we'll also have an outline of sorts, uh, so you can kind of take it home with you. So, all right, so without further ado, I will turn it over to my good friend, uh, Brother Urshan, and I will keep everybody muted, and he'll be, but at the end, we'll have a time of questions. So if you want to ask anything, by all means, do that. And I will mute myself as well, so it doesn't bump me to speaker mode if I start amening him or something. So, <laughs> so all right, Brother Anderson, it's all you, sir. All right. Well, Brother Anderson, it's great to be with you and to participate in this. I've been looking forward to it so much, and I value the work that, that you do, and it's a, it's a very needed thing. I'm, and welcome to everybody. We're so glad that you guys are able to join us. I am in the Biblo studio, and so I thought it would just be a good way to stay on point and use equipment that's a little bit better than my laptop. <laughs> so, you know, if you're here, you're you're interested in and perhaps involved in apostolic leadership and engaged in apostolic ministry. Apostolic leadership is a unique, unique thing. It's unlike anything else in the world because it is anointed and empowered by the Holy Ghost. So there's no other leadership structure in the cosmos that can eclipse or supersede apostolic leadership. I heard a a preacher preached a message one time years ago when I was in Stockton. He preached a message. He entitled it, You Have a High and Holy Calling, Take Heed. That was the name of the, the title of the message. And I think it behooves us to understand the, the weight of responsibility that we have, the great privilege that we have. And... 
because in the past, leadership and ministry in an apostolic context has not been regulated, sometimes it can be left open to just whosoever wants it. Now, that can be a good thing in that, you know, whosoever will let him come, but in the context of salvation, but when it comes to leadership, many are called, few are chosen. And I, I can remember an old saying that I heard as a kid, some were called, some were sent, some just packed up and went. So um, I was telling one of our, our leadership groups here the other day, we were having a session and I said, you know, if you're going to be in leadership, then you've got to lead people. You've got to be, you got to follow the Holy ghost. And if you are not a leader, just turn around and see if anybody's following you. And if nobody is following you, you're out for a walk, my friend. <laughs> so, um, I think that a, a clear awareness, a self-awareness that I need a genuine calling in my life. God has called me to lead. Now, in a very generic sense, God has called every apostolic to be a leader of the lost out of darkness into God's marvelous light. So, you know, I, I'm assuming you know that you, you, you're aware of that. We're called to lead people to Jesus Christ. That's the great commission. But in the context of the church and leading people, leading other leaders, leading God's people, that is a very specific thing. And when it is done right, when an apostolic leader has the mind of Christ and is effectively ministering, they can be extremely effective in a small setting. Some people are called to a small setting. Um, some are very effective in an intermediate setting with, with more people. And then some are just world changers. They you know, this is the, the the fruit that was born 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. This is the one talent. This is the two talent. It's the five talent servants. God distributes to them according to his will and his purpose. Every one of them has a place in the kingdom of God. Um, So there's nothing more beautiful than a, than a man or a woman in their calling operating effectively leading people into the purpose of God. There's also something that saddens me, and I see this a lot. And that is a leader that doesn't know their place. Some of the worst rebels I've ever known are amazing leaders. And they are leaders that are wandering stars. They are leading people into error. They are leading people into further rebellion. Korah was a leader. People followed Korah. And rebellion is misguided leadership. And I, I mean, some of the worst rebels I've dealt with in my ministry were amazing leaders. They were persuasive. They were charismatic they they were oftentimes manipulative. And so I think our motives have to be pure. We have to be very honest with ourselves. And I'll just say this at the outset here, guys. I, I knew a preacher one time that he was an amazing leader, world-class leader. He had an assistant. That's assistant was also a world-class leader, but it was in a secondary status. His gifting was not direct leadership. His gifting in leadership was complementary leadership. He was a, a wonderful administrator. He had the hearts of the people. Um, he impacted thousands of people under the ministry of the primary leader. Well, he got a chance to pastor a church, and he had always had a desire to pastor a church. And so he went to this primary leader. I won't use the name because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But he went to this, this, this primary leader, and he said, 
I have a relative. He's getting older. He wants me to take this church. I believe God's told me to take it. The great leader said, please don't. We are, we are amazingly effective together. Please don't do this. And he begged him, he implored him, but he just felt like he needed a pastor. He felt like being in a complimentary role was somehow less than, which it's not. It is not. Great, great primary leaders don't do well in secondary roles, and secondary leaders oftentimes flounder in primary roles. Everybody has their gifting. And this man did. He left. He left this great church. He, The people mourned his passing. He was so great, it took four other men to take his place when he left. That's how, that's how effective he was. And he was the glue that held so much together. And the church never was the same after he left. He went and took this church of about 75 people, and he drove it right into the ground. He ran it down to next to nothing. He lost his kids to the world. Um, he wound up very bitter and feeling like life had dealt him an unfair hand, and he passed away just maybe 10 years after that. And I remember in my younger ministry thinking to myself, God help me to be self-aware. I don't want to lose my kids. I don't want to miss my calling. Whatever place you want me in, whether it is as a pastor, whether it is as an assistant to the pastor, if it's an evangelist. I've known evangelists that were amazing evangelists that were terrible pastors. I, I mean, they could move the multitudes and they, something in them said, well, I need to pastor. They get this itch to pastor. Well, it took six months of listening to people's problems and being the first one criticized and the last one thanked and having, you know, evangelists, they can run in, preach, and they can walk out and pastors got to lock the door and uh, turn the lights off. And, and when he gets home, gets in bed, some knucklehead calls him and ignored the entire message and uh, wants to recap the whole thing. And I've had people call me at two in the morning wanting to know about the priesthood of Melchizedek. <laughs> I want to get my hands around their neck and say, I'll give you Melchizedek. <laughs> um, so every man, every woman in their own calling to be self-aware enough to know, to be prayerful enough to know uh, is, is a powerful thing. And I had a, a, an administrator that had helped me as a young minister. He, his name was Brother Rivers. Brother Rivers was the administrator at our church in Kokomo, Indiana. He is a dear friend of mine. Uh, you may, People may not know who he is, but I know who he is. He's a great man of principle and honor and responsible for hundreds of people coming to God by bringing them to church and loving them. And he, he served under my father. And on his office wall, he had a plaque. And that plaque said, the hardest instrument on earth to play is second fiddle. And I remember being a teen and looking at that going, huh, I wonder what's so hard about second fiddle. <laughs> what's the big deal? I mean, what, you know, and it, it never, you know, the, the double entendre escaped me. And I, it wasn't until I got older that I realized, oh, I get it now. Like uh, people feel their second fiddle. And you can really, really be an amazing leader when you are in your, your divine place that God has placed you. Or you can destroy everything and operate at a very minimal capacity if you step out of that thinking you want something. So I think a, a, an anointed, self-aware person that knows the hour they're in, that understands the call that's on their life and the opportunities that present themselves. That is a powerful, powerful person. Um, apostolic leadership is very different from secular leadership in that we deal with eternal consequences in, in regular leadership. Somebody might get a bad job review or they might, you know, mess something up on the job and, 
you got to order something new or somebody might get their feelings hurt. But in our, our line of work, people go to heaven. People go to hell. Life decisions are made. And, you know, in Proverbs, it says that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. And there's this intricate, delicate balance that, that is so necessary. I was, I was talking to the church the other night, and I remember reading an article that was entitled, The Virtues Have Gone Wild. It's a great, great article. And I remember being intrigued by that, thinking, what does that mean? And, and the idea in the article was that we have, must remain tethered to the purpose of God. And people assume that it's vices going wild that is the biggest problem. But the reality is that when virtue becomes untethered, it's one of the most damaging things. And they gave the illustration that we know what happens when vice goes wild. Wild. The book of Judges is full of terrible stories. The man whose concubine is taken outside and, and abused, and he winds up having to divide her into 12 pieces and sending her off to the tribes. I mean, terrible, terrible stories. Um, the judge that comes home and says, if you'll give me victory, then the first thing that comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice, and his daughter comes running out. The vices of the Old Testament Bible takes an unflinching look at them, and we we know what bad vice looks like. We're surrounded by it. Newspaper headlines are full of that. And as bad as that is, virtue that is untethered is worse. And his point was that leadership, spiritual leadership, must be an intricate balance of spiritual virtues. So we're supposed as leaders, we're supposed to search for and lead people to truth. So truth is a virtue. We're also supposed to embody love, charity. We are also supposed to contend for faith and hope and, and mercy. These are all virtues that we contend for. If those virtues ever become untethered from the purpose of the kingdom of God, monsters are created. And he gives the example, and I'm saying I'm saying this in the context of if you're going to be a leader, you have to ask God to plant these virtues in you. Help me to know when, not just what to say, but when to say it, and to know the spirit in which to deliver it. It's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. They've said that knowledge is knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing when to say it uh, and when, where to apply it. And the, in the article, they gave the, the, um, the analogy of the Nazis. The Nazis, one of the, one of the worst regimes ever to, to walk the earth, they pursued truth. They're scientists, they're geneticists, they're physicists pursued truth, which is a virtue. It is a virtue to pursue truth. But they pursued truth with no conscience. They pursued it with no mercy. They pursued it with no value for human life. So they experimented on people. They they did unspeakable things to people. And it, that's an example of virtue becoming untethered. Um, so how does that look in my life? Well, so I'm not going to use an extreme example like that. Let me, let me show you how it would look in a preacher's life or a leader's life. I've heard guys say, I'm just going to tell the truth. And I don't care how people feel about it. I'm going to just tell them the truth. And that's how it's going to be. And they will just unleash a a flamethrower of truth and obliterate somebody and just full orbed full on and it's it's a terrible terrible thing that happens paul never did that paul 
would say, I wanted to speak to you as unto spiritual, but you are yet carnal. You couldn't receive it. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. And, and so he would give truth in bite-sized pieces, and it would be couched in a lot of mercy and a lot of wisdom. And you know, one of his great, great chapters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, he, he tells, uh, Paul, Peter says that we are to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity and if we do these things we will not be barren we won't be unfruitful well that that determined strategic approach of prayerfully walking a person into what they can handle at the stage they're in. And, and probably a good example of that is with babes, with babies, with children. Um, you don't feed, and, and, and the scripture uses this analogy, you don't feed newborns full meat. Full meat belongs to those that are seasoned and are a full age. Um, and so we give them the sincere milk of the word. We, we, we know that they are not at a stage of being able to receive that. So let's say you're teaching someone, they're brand new. I know guys that the first lesson is going to be holiness. They're just going to tell them, um, get that makeup off and, and don't put scissors in your hair and, and you need to do this, that, 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 that. And they will give them this list of things and they feel that they are just, they're just telling them like it is. And there are guys that if you don't do that, they think you're a compromiser. Well, for me, that's like walking up to a, a two-year-old and, and saying, all right, kid, uh, rent's due at the end of the month, and, um, and I expect a 40-hour work week out of you, and, um, and make sure you get this room in order and, and, and just start barking commands at him and tell him, well, you got to shape up or ship out. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's insanity. It's not compromise. And I, I find that, that that ability to parcel out those truths and disciple people. Paul says, I'm gentle among you as a nurse cherisheth her children. And nurse there literally means nursemaid. It means one who is holding the infant to the breast and it's a female analogy. It's a nurturing, gentle analogy. And, you know, that ties directly to Isaiah 28, where he says, who shall he make to understand knowledge? Who shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. Um, for uh, things have to be given line upon line, precept upon precept here a little and there a little. That's an Old Testament principle and a New Testament principle. So the apostolic leader has to have that toolbox, that arsenal of developmental tools. So yes, we give love, but love, all love, you'll never give them truth. Um, you know, if love ever, ever becomes untethered from God's purpose, I, I've seen mothers who deal with teenage boys and they'll say, I love you so much. There's nothing you can do that would ever make me speak harshly to you. I love you. And the, and the boy's a monster. You know, he's going bananas. He's lying to people. He's manipulating. He's cussing everybody out. And, 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 and when, when he's called to responsibility, somebody deals with him strongly. The mother runs to him in love and says, oh, don't touch my baby. That's not Christian. This is my baby. Honey, honey, I'll give you anything you want. Did that bad man hurt you? Did that mean man hurt you? And what you're doing is creating a monster. And when the virtues go wild, untethered from the purpose of God, it's one of the most terrifying things. That's, that's when there's genocides. That's when there's um, terrible enablement. Um. 
So that nuanced, balanced development of those traits in a leader is critical. Love, joy, those fruits of the Spirit, learning how to cultivate that, learning how to impart that. I think no secular leader has to worry about that. They, they're, they're wanting to know, did you show up on time? Did you clock in? Did you, did you fulfill your to-do list? Are you following the job description? If you don't, you're fired. We'll find another one just like you, you know, and, and yes, you can inspire. Yes, you can motivate to great things. There are great leaders in that sense, but those secular leaders are building cars. They're, they're manufacturing buildings. They're, they're doing uh, administrative work for large corporations or whatever. I'm all for teamwork. I'm all for camaraderie. I'm all for the good things we can learn from secular leaders. But, but apostolic leaders deal with issues of ultimacy. And so being aware of that, uh, tapping into the anointing and letting God shape you and form you as a leader I think another thing I'll say about apostolic leadership is you have to go to the mountain first and get it. You can't lead someone where you've never gone. And so you can't teach people how to teach Bible studies if you can't teach a Bible study. And you can't teach anybody about submission if you can't follow. Um, you can't pastor a church if you can't lead your own family. Um, so these are all very scriptural dynamics and, and the, the probably one of the greatest templates we have is Moses. Moses goes to the mountain and I'll even say this. I'm very suspicious of people who are frustrated and angry that they're not getting their shot at leadership. The great leaders of the scripture usually were hesitant to take it. And they were always doing. They weren't waiting. We never read where Jesus went up to somebody who was waiting on him. And when he showed up and said, follow me, they said, well, it's about time somebody finally let me in the pulpit. <laughs> you never see Jesus doing that. You find Jesus going to men who are casting in nets. You find Elijah taking a man who's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. I could, I could preach about that because he's literally harnessing the two sets of 12, which if we have the Old Testament 12 and the New Testament 12, I like leaders that know how to harness both testaments and plow the field. Um, but he's going to doers. He's going to people that are active. And they're oftentimes hesitant. So there's the Old Testament parable of the, the trees of the forest going to find a leader. And they come to, they come to the, um, the olive tree. And the olive tree says, I can't be your leader. I'm making olives. And they go to the vine. And the vine says, I can't. I'm producing grapes. So they go to the fig tree. I can't. I'm making figs. They go to the thistle, and the thistle says, I'd be happy to be your leader. I'm not doing anything. There's no, no fruit on these branches, and come and trust in my shadow. Those ones that are just chomping at the bit and just, they're frustrated, they're, they're bitter. Just, when's anybody going to give me my chance to be a leader? If you're God-called and you're a leader, you don't have to sit there and moan about the fact that you're not a leader. <laughs> when you have it, you have it. God leads you. Then you're always doing. You're doing it anyway. I've had people come to me and say, what title would you like, Brother Urshan? Nathan. Just call me Nathan. That's fine. I... You know, and, and I'm all for respect, and, and I, I believe in respect and, and hierarchy and leadership. I believe in all of that. But you don't need a title to start leading. Um, David is arguably, outside of 
Jesus Christ and perhaps Moses, the greatest leader in the Bible. And his proving ground is leading sheep. And that graduated incremental growth into, and, and even it was even looked down upon when he goes to his brother, I think it's Abinadab, I might have that wrong, but it, it's the older brother. When he goes to the older brother, why have you left those few sheep that you are watching? And David was content there. David was happy there. He did not go up to the battle until Jesse called him. So he he finds whatsoever state he's in therewith to be content. And when you are doing it with excellence and when you are humbling yourself under God, you, if, if you're flourishing where you're at, you won't be able to handle the opportunities God throws at you. And I'll, I'll speak to frustration and I'll speak to resentment and I'll speak to bitterness in leaders because those are all hallmarks of people who are pushing to get their way and they feel slighted or they feel cheated because they're not getting their way. They see other people getting opportunities, but why am I not getting that opportunity? That is the hallmark of a person who is out of order uh, in, in leadership. A, a true leader does what God called him to do, period. And it starts with one Bible study. It starts with one class. It starts with one delegated task from Jesse, the father. Um, and when the father tells you to do it, you do it. That's, that is the essence that's the essence of faith. Jesus calls that the greatest of faith. I say to this man, go and he goes. This man, come and he comes. If I can operate under that authority, there's no great, so great faith in all of Israel, Jesus says. So you begin to exhibit that faith. David proves his excellence and he works his way up. So if, if you're dealing with frustration or you feel like you're, you're not getting where you need to be, take self-inventory, take stock of yourself and say, okay, am I called to do what I'm doing? Is there something that I'm not seeing in myself? And, and fight to find that role that you really are called to fill. I have even seen amazing preachers who struggled to pastor and I've seen some men that will pastor for 30 years and they'll do good. People will, they will grow. There'll be, there'll be revival of a sort. I've seen them retire. I've seen them become retired preachers. And when they do, it's like they explode with opportunity and they find they were always called to that. That was their real gifting. And for 30 years, they fought through the mud and muck and mire of pastoring when they weren't really called to pastor. They were called to an evangelist role. They were called um, to that. And and then I've, I know guys that weren't the greatest preachers in the world, but they love people and they love souls and they build powerful churches because they got, got their hands on the sheep and they love those sheep and they are developing those sheep. And they're oftentimes not glitzy or glamorous. There's no, they're not going to wow you with their conference preaching, but they will build a church that will storm the gates of hell. And so I have just found that knowing that role, knowing that place is, is critical in leadership. Um, That anointing, you know, we're called to preach the gospel. We're called to lead men and women to Jesus Christ. Some of the greatest leaders I've ever known learn from the ground up. They start out with the most menial tasks, the most humble of tasks. The greatest leaders I know, they know how to sweep floors. They know how to do things that some people feel are beneath them. And... I don't have a job that's beneath me at the church. I was raised to do those simple things and they grew into more complex things. 
I also find that you treat people better when you understand what they're going through, when you've done it. You understand them on a level. I, I've, seen, I've seen leaders get churches, become pastors, and they, they treat people terribly. They, they delegate and, and run people ragged with no regard for their home, their, their free time, their, their marriage, their children. You know, it's 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday night. I need you to come over here. We got to do this right now. And, you know, and it, with no little to no life experience or not having done the grassroots work, you don't know how exhausted they are. You don't know. You can't appreciate the the hard work that they're putting in. So when you learn it from the grassroots up, you're a powerful person. Powerful person. The most powerful men I know are the most humble and the most meek. And they can they can push the right buttons when they need to. You know, Bishop Wilson said this and it always resonated with me. Leadership and manipulation are two sides of the same coin. Um, the difference is intention. So leadership is positive manipulation and manipulation is rotten leadership. It's, you know, am I, am I, am I pushing your buttons to get you to Jesus or am I pushing your buttons to get something for myself? And great, great leaders understand that. I have known men that are the most meek, self-effacing, self-deprecatory men that you would never think could crack the whip or be uh, bold. And when it comes time to be bold, they become lions. I mean, and it startles you. I mean, when they got to turn it on, they will turn it on. And when they're done, they, they, they stop pulling that lever once the job's done and they, they move into another administration of leadership. Um, I've seen men raise their voice strongly. And if you need to rebuke somebody and it's time to rebuke somebody, you better be able to do it. The Bible says, um, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So there's a time for rebuke. And sometimes there's a time for open rebuke. So a leader has to know when that time is. Now, if you're just doing that every time you turn around and, and throwing your weight around and you're on an authority trip, no, that's, you're untethered. You're going to abuse that role. Even Moses, when he picks up the serpent, he only does it for a moment. He only does it long enough to back Pharaoh off. And so knowing what to apply, knowing when to apply it, having the virtue that is in you tethered to the purpose of God. The Bible says that Tribulation works patience. Patience works experience. Experience works hope. And hope makes not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So the worst things in my life have prepared me to be the best I can be. And I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to suffer. I am willing to go through the trial if that's what it takes. I don't want to, but I will. And I know that in there I'm being refined. I am developing love. You, you never know the true value of love until you've seen hate and until you've seen abuse and you've seen just how beautiful and valuable love is. And you know, a leader needs a fresh revelation of what joy is. You know, that second fruit of the Spirit, joy. It's important to let the joy of the Lord be your strength. It's important, even if you feel hollow inside, to, to manifest the joy of the Lord. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not something you feel. Joy is something you contend for, and you let it hang on the branches of your life. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And so even when my life is falling apart, I'm still rejoicing in the Lord. 
And when I walk into a room, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to fight and strive to not let my inner turmoil show on my face, show in my body language. You know, I've known of people that have gone through terrible trials and you walk up to them and you say, how are you? They say, I'm doing well. God is so good. How are you doing? And I know that they are going to Hades in the moment. But those are people who are leading and they're leading by example. If a dad can keep the joy of the Lord as his one of his central focuses, his wife will feed off of that joy. It's called the fruit of the Spirit because they feed off of it. They are hungry for it. And if you're bringing negativity and you're bringing doubt and you're bringing the wrong things, people aren't going to come. But, you know, I, I enjoy hunting and I like to cultivate properties for hunting. If you want to attract, plant the fruits they like. And there are no greater fruits than the fruits of the Spirit. And, you know, in the scripture, we see Jesus, the greatest leader to ever walk this earth. We see the multitudes thronging him. He was such a perfect balance of those fruits that I came out one day from uh, my, my folks' house, and they have a little apple tree in the back of their yard. There was a deer on its hind legs. It's two paws in the air, and it's the other two Oh, hooves. Deer don't have paws. <laughs> it's hooves are front. The front limbs are in the air and the back two hooves are on the ground. It was standing up like a giraffe and it was eating these small apples. And I thought that right there is what will draw people. If you will manifest those fruits, if you will lead people, um, by exhibiting that, by contending for that, by propagating that, by nurturing that. It's a powerful thing. They throng Jesus. Jesus has to, he has to get in a boat to get away from them. <laughs> just everywhere he goes, he does good. And he heals and he touches and he, he, he ministers to them. And he, he, he's, he's gracious, he's kind. I, I tell leaders here in Durham, that I want them to strive to be the first Corinthians 13 man or woman. I want, and I tell them read first Corinthians 13 every day until you get it in your heart. I just make it, make it a daily regimen until you have ingested it completely because the Bible says of charity, which is the root of charisma, That 1 Corinthians 13 leader, those traits right there are, are going to create success. They are going to create a following. They're go the hungry will come. It love seeketh not her own. That right there. You could spend a whole lot of time right there on not seeking your own. In my ministry, I never strategized what I was going to do politically. I never thought to myself, when I, when I went to Fort Myers, I never sat down and thought, let's see if I play my cards right and I could bit, get that church to a certain size, then I'd really get the big opportunity. You know, Or I remember when I went to Roatan, I had friends call me up and ask me if I'd lost my mind. What, what are you doing? Have you, have you, I mean, have you thought about this? Well, what happened was I sat up one morning and I had a dream and God told me to do it. And I know that might sound crazy. You know, I talked to my leaders and my mentors about it and they were all for it. And I never sat down and thought, now how will this benefit me? How can I turn this to me really getting a good church or really getting a good ministry or really hitting the big time as an evangelist? And there are people that think like that. I've known of people that married their spouse for that reason. Ooh, their daddy is a big shot. Let me, and it's funny because there was one young lady when we were younger, her dad was a big time preacher 
And there were preachers, young men all over the country that felt the call to move to that church and, and sit at the feet of the grand master. And, and it was all to marry her. And we laughed at it. We saw this happening. And the Bible says that love seeketh not her own. If I'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he'll give me more than I can handle. And that is a beautiful, beautiful trait in the leader. Stop calculating and strategizing. And and I, I'm all for planning. I believe in planning and, and doing things with wisdom, but not for the express purpose of benefiting myself. Behaveth itself not unseemly, not easily provoked. Is not puffed up, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So these are the traits and leadership that I teach. It's what I contend for. And I think I'm just about out of time here. So um, this is this is my view of leadership, apostolic leadership, anointed leadership. It it needs to be tethered to the purpose of God. It is eternal in consequence. It deals with issues of ultimacy and if people will ingest that and embody that, they will be great leaders. Fantastic. Well, thank you so very, very much. And honestly, if you have more to say, uh, we do open up for questions, but um, <clears throat> typically, you know, we go about an hour. Um, <clears throat> if anyone has questions, please let us know. And while they are thinking about it, let me just make a couple of comments. Uh, very, very rich, very wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I think my main takeaway is about the fruit of the spirit, right? If we're not manifesting that fruit of the spirit, and, I, and I've heard, I think you and your brother talked before about the fruit being, being the edible part of us, right? <laughs> People want to consume that because it's the fruit. Um, and not having an agenda, that is so, that is so powerful because, and unfortunately, even in Pentecost, I mean, that's the only world we really know, but people jockey for positions and guys as well. They've been like, yeah, if I can go to that church and marry that girl and yeah. this can happen. I remember when you went to Rotan, I was with you there not long after that. And uh, you're right. A lot of people were like, man, is that, how's that benefit him? You, know? <laughs> you told me I woke up in the middle of the night and felt like I was supposed to go. <laughs> so there you go. Then so about, about, about that fruit. If you ever noticed, I'm sure you've noticed this, when the high priest goes into the tabernacle, that Levitical mandate was that there was to be a pomegranate and a bell, and a pomegranate and a bell, and a pomegranate and a bell. And I heard a great message preached when I was young, I never forgot it, that the fruits have to be balanced with the gifts. And if you are not if, if, if every pomegranate is not, if every bell is not accompanied by a pomegranate, you're out of balance. And that's critical for a leader. Absolutely. So true. So true. Because it's, it's like people can be like you mentioned earlier about if you give someone nothing but love, um, there's never going to get truth. And likewise, you can give truth without giving love, you know, the flamethrower thing you talk about. Um, that's why Paul said in, in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, <laughs> it takes truth and it takes love. Yeah. Um, I mean, not, no, nothing else, no other way just describes God as something other than love, right? Yeah. Say this is God, that is God. The only thing that says God is love. So yeah. after that, but God well, is also a monument of truth. In that vein of thinking, um, when, when you're talking about truth and you're talking about love, in my experience in teaching home Bible studies, they don't want your truth unless they know you love them. And I have even known like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and people that are teaching error that people will listen to them and will ingest false doctrine if they think it's love. And that's, that's a big deal. That's exactly right. Because as they say, you got to win them to yourself before you win them to the Lord. Right. I mean, it's kind of an old adage, but it's like, they won't even remember necessarily what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Follow me as I follow Christ. 
Exactly. It's like if you manifest the love of God, that's what draws them. No man can come except the spirit draw. And so when he draws and you have that love, then they're receptive. They're they're open to what you have to say. So uh, does anyone have any questions for us? If not, we're, we're going to keep going here for, for a couple minutes, if that's all right. Um, I did want to mention as well, uh, I've heard Brother Wilson say before, Bishop Wilson say, somebody, you know, they pastored that church for 20 years or, or whatever. He said, no, they didn't pastor the church for 20 years. They pastored that church for one year, 20 times. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I mean, that's so quotable. It's like, because so <laughs> they never got past square one. It's yeah. like, you've got that leadership should produce fruit. You know, an apostolic, absolutely. There ought to be something. You're sowing seed. There's going to be a harvest. So if you're the same place you were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you really pastored one year multiple times that is awesome <laughs> so very good well you we actually have some more time but unfortunately we have a a, a bit of a quiet crowd tonight <laughs> i'm sure they're just taking it in and i do try to um you know tell people come prepared with the questions but uh and sometimes you know, yeah go ahead. I, I know you mentioned a little earlier that it might help to talk a little bit about preaching yeah yeah absolutely please we've got time it's a form of, of leadership. Um, I remember the Lord telling me as a young man, I remember him telling me, I was hiking and I, I went down to a stream and I, I, I love nature and, you know, um, creation declares God's glory and, and God talks to me when I'm out there and I, I love it. I, I, saw a rock in the stream and I reached down and I picked up that rock and it was slimy. It was covered in a coat of algae. And I, I just felt the Lord impress on my heart and it wasn't like this audible voice. It was just my, my mind began to just go to it. And I know from experience, that's how the Lord talks to me. He'll speak to me through those thoughts as I'm lining it up with scripture and the thought that came to me was there was a time when this rock was just a rock, but because it was submerged, life grew. And I just felt like God told me, just submerge yourself. Don't worry about growing. I'll handle the growing you submerge yourself in prayer and in the Bible. You read that Bible up one side and down the other. And so when I would open up my Bible, I viewed myself sinking beneath the water and just submerging myself into his purpose. And at first it was just data. It was just words. I'm trying to make sense of it. But then I got to where I craved it. And then the patterns begin to emerge. And then it became a fire shut up in my bones. And I had, and, and that is the essence of going up to the mountain to see. And once you have seen, you take that from the Lord and you bring it back to the people and you declare it. So the greatest thing I can tell a, a preacher to do is submerge yourself in prayer and the Bible and preaching will happen. You will have something to say and it will be, it'll be powerful. Amen. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you to address it, and you kind of kind of did there, your personal preparation in ministry, because I know obviously you come from a long lineage from, you know, eight years and et cetera, as, as we all know about. And I remember I was in as a headquarters years ago in St. Louis. I was evangelized. It was mid-90s. My son was young. He's with me, three or four. And your grandpa was addressing, I think they just recorded a harvest time or something. I was in the area, so we stopped by. And he said, yeah, my grandson, Joel, asked me, when can I get my license? <laughs> and he said, well, first you have, you know the story, of course. Yeah. He said, well, first you have to drive with somebody and you have to, he said, no, no, I mean my preaching license. Yeah. <laughs> he said, well, you're a little young for that, aren't you? He said, well, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. That's Moses right. was 80 years old when he led people out of Egypt. I don't think age matters to God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your grandpa said, how do you argue with that? Yeah. He said, talk to your father. <laughs> 
it's been uh in bread in you obviously but still you had to personalize it and i've heard you say before at some point you had to become not the great grandson of A.D. Urshan and not even the grandson of N.A. Urshan had become your own N.A. Urshan. So if you could expand a little bit on how you submerge yourself in the word, I know there's nothing that you read but the word for uh, 10 years, several period of time. Yeah. Talk about that if you would, sir. Yeah, I didn't read another book for 10 years. It was just, it was, I had a minimum per day. My minimum at first was three chapters a day. I would not lay my head on my pillow until I read three chapters. It became five chapters. That became 10 chapters. And then it just became hours. I would just read and, and read and read. And um, I developed just a hunger for that. And I can tell when a man is a word man and when a guy is a casual reader. What's coming out of their mouth is very influenced by that word. They know the less popular passages. They know the the right quotations of those passages they take the time to articulate it properly and I, and there's a few of them and when i talk to them i can tell i can i can hear it in their tone and their wording um so it was a daily routine of prayer and bible study that got it into me um then there's just the preaching itself which when I first began, my brother Joel was a great preacher. Um, Joel came out of the womb preaching. Uh, <laughs> you know, when he was eight and nine, he was just digesting hours upon hours of great apostolic preaching. And even today, he is an avid consumer of preaching. And, and he just, he loved that. That was a passion of his. I did not get that until later in my life. And he was an inspiration for me. My father was an inspiration, my family. I, I could see, oh, this is how this works. And and so I began to consume preaching. I don't probably have the polish of some. I, But w what helped me was I started a church where I preached three times a week. I taught Bible studies all day, every day, and I learned to articulate that way. Um, you know, people want pulpit time, go start a church, <laughs> go find a street corner, go start teaching Bible studies. You will develop a public presence and your gift will make room for itself. Um, in Bible college, they told us have three main points, have an intro, three main points and an ending. Um, so I, I followed that little format and and I had my notes and, and I actually do have notes that I write down for scripture, but I don't take them to the pulpit with me. Um, because for me, when I preach, I, I have an outline. I know what I want to say and I, I'll, I might even jot it down or type it. But then I, I put it away and I say, all right, God, take out of me what you want to. And I'll go to the pulpit. And I view it like crossing a stream and jumping from rock to rock. And once I've landed on that rock, I'll sit on that rock for a while and get my balance. And that's me. I'm, I'm preaching on that point. I'm preaching on that point. But then God starts opening up other points. And then I'll jump to that rock until finally I'm across the stream. That's the end of the message. Um, when I am, and this is for me, this is not for other people. I know great preachers that preach from notes that are just amazing. It doesn't work as well for me. My mind doesn't work that way. Um, and I find that when I do that, particularly in our local church setting, God takes my mind in a spirit of prophecy. I will address, there will be things that come to me in that message I wasn't planning on saying, and it is the spirit of prophecy at work. And I will literally be addressing things I have no knowledge of that God is feeding me in that message. And I can't tell you the times people come to me when it's over sobbing saying, how could you know that? How could, there's no human way you could know that. And again, back to what I was talking about earlier, love seeketh not her own. When I have operated in the, the gifts of the spirit, it has never been me shining a spotlight on myself. I, and it's never been a, thus saith the Lord. 
I say unto thee, you know, it's never been like that. I oftentimes I'm not aware it's happening. I'm speaking under the unction of the Holy Ghost. I'm preaching, but it's it's falling, it's touching, it's ministering to people. And it's no glory of mine. I'm just fumbling my way through as best I can, and God is doing it. So it's it's being done without my awareness. So oftentimes that that's how it works for me. So that's how I got experience was starting a church. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't preach conferences or anything until like 12 years into my preaching ministry after, after preaching in home missions. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I just said a man's gift will make uh, room for himself. Another big takeaway there is we don't have to prophesy in the King James. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Might, uh, let's see. Okay. I thought we might have a question. Maybe not. People are just saying, God bless. Would you mind telling the story real quick? It's a super quick story of the game you and Joel used to play in the back of the car when you guys were driving someplace. Absolutely. I, I love this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just this little game. We'd be driving down the road and we, we wanted to kill the time and pass the hours and, you know, be four hours, five hours on the road. So we developed this game where we would go to the Bible and we did it in the New Testament. Uh, we we weren't skillful enough for the Old Testament, but we we could in the New Testament. And and we didn't use Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John because they sounded so similar that we had a hard time pinpointing that. But from Acts to Revelation, we would we would take that and we would pick a verse and we would read it, and I would read it to Joel, and. He, he would then have to tell me where that verse was, um, book, chapter, and verse. And if he got the book, it was one point. If it was the chapter, it was two points. And if it was the verse, it was three points, the three-pointer. <laughs> and um, you got to where you became familiar with the tone of the writer. You 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 learned where it was in the book. Where I could even, I even got to the point where I I could see it on the page, and I could track down the chapter. And, and then I would say, it's going to be around verse three or four. And, and it's began to startle us how close we got. And oftentimes we got it. And then he would do it back to me. So, um, yeah, we did that as kids. You'd hit a three pointer. So every now and then hit a three pointer. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. Yeah. I mean, these days it's probably more video games they're on, on the phone, but, <laughs> yes. but what a, what a training ground. That's amen. tremendous. Amen. So I did not say, let me check the chat here. I saw a couple, but I think it was like amens and stuff. Um, so real quick, let me see here. Oh, let's see. God bless everyone. Okay. Uh, Brother Ruben, let me read what he said here. And if you want to go on the mic and say it, you can. If not, God bless everyone in Jesus' name. I'm a youth leader from New York, and I'm blessed to be part of the Zoom meeting. My question is, okay, he does have a question. I was recently told by my pastor that I was called to preach and I'm still processing it, but what's the best advice you can give to someone who's called to pastor? And I don't, I, I maybe just meant called to preach. Uh, what sort of things should I uh, look after for? What sort of things should I look for maybe? So basically what, what road should he take now that his pastor's one is identify the call? Just quickly, could you uh, give us your thoughts on that? Become your pastor's MVP. Um, Elisha, Elisha washed the hands of Elijah. And he followed him. He followed him from Gilgal to, to Jericho to um, the other ones running from me right now. But he followed him everywhere. And, and he said, if you follow me, you'll see me go up. So, do what your pastor needs. If your pastor needs help, be there. Be that that twenty four hour presence in his in his life and in his ministry. Um, I would say if you're wanting to exercise that gift, start teaching Bible studies. I am not an advocate of throwing a guy in the pulpit. Um, if a guy doesn't teach Bible studies, I don't want him in the pulpit. Um. That's, that's my, my feeling. I was, I was raised that way. And, and Billy Cole said, if you, if you teach a man to preach before he's 
a soul winner, he'll always seek a pulpit. But if you will, if you'll teach him to win souls, he'll always seek souls. And then you'll have something to say in the pulpit. Um, but in that Bible study teaching and in that, in that local setting, your gift will make room for itself and the pulpit time is going to come. And, and once the fruit is there and it's obvious the hand of God is upon you, you grow in wisdom in the sight of men and in the sight of God, then you're going to be off to the races. Excellent. Very good. And let me just clarify, it's my mistake. I read it as called the preach. He actually has been told he's called a pastor, but everything he said still applies. But, yeah. but uh, so, but so I'm assuming then he's probably down a road a little farther than maybe I was thinking about the call to preach. Um, and so, yeah, but absolutely take care of the man of God and uh, seek first kingdom of God. So, yeah. well, thank you so very, very much. Uh, pastor Urshan, it's always an honor to, to be with you, my friend. I appreciate you. Coming to us from the Biblos studio. If anybody's not checked out Biblos, I go walking uh, when it's not raining. It's a little rainy this time of year in Sacramento. Afterward, about four o'clock, and it'll be Biblos followed by Kingdom Speak or something. <laughs> so it's a it's a great podcast. So you definitely got to uh, got to check that out. So uh, thank you for the questions, and uh, thank you so much. So the video again will be available uh, a little bit edited version. Um, it'll have all the content, but we'll clean it up a little bit as well as an outline I'm going to put together here within the next uh, 48 to 72 hours. And remember two weeks from tonight, actually, normally these are a little more spaced out, but due to schedules, two weeks from now, we will have brother Jeremy Wilbanks teaching on theological methods. So he'll be with us. And if you guys are interested in any of the previous episodes, we've had brother Holmes, brother Caleb Adams, uh, Luke St. Clair had several great ones thus far, but thank you so much, Brother Urshan. God bless you, my friend, and we look forward to seeing you. Hopefully you make the No Limits. We'd love to see you there. So. I'll see you there. I look forward to it. All right. God bless you all for coming. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a good night. Sir.